From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, is in the house. If you've got a question, give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Um, if you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five, and um, you can. Also, reach us via email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky. Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host to see us every Friday, Colin Donovan. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Coming down from the high of our EWTN radio banquet it yesterday, was. that it was, was wonderful. Colin, thank you so much for being in attendance. It's always um, it's always good for our affiliates to rub shoulders with the theological brain trust of the uh, and 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 spirit right. trust. And, and I was there as well. I know. You but it's a big it is a, it's a big treat for our affiliates to get to see and and interact in person with the people that they see on television here right, on the yeah. radio. Uh, and it's and it's treat. good seeing them. I recognize so many faces unlike you you you're rubbing shoulders with them year round basically in one way or another. It's hard to sometimes to pin faces except the you know with the names the the people who've been there for such a long time and the number of Iowa stations is that <laughs> no, the highest per no. capita in the country no, there, no there there just happened there was a there was a uh, there was a and a window a non-commercial FM radio window that was opened in 2003 I remember that yeah in and there was a concerted effort within the state of, I- of yeah. Iowa to yeah. get those licenses, yeah. and that's so why that's why they well all, they did a good job yeah. because it seemed like everybody was from Iowa last time. night. That's right. So, <laughs> <laughs> got a question here from Laura. She wants to know: Can you explain invincible ignorance to me? Sure. Um, I have to explain first, maybe a little bit about conscience. In conscience, we're judged uh, by God by what we know to be true and or even believe to be true can also be uh, an aspect of it and the concurrence of our will with that belief now the catholic conscience would be a right conscience and it knows the truth and a good conscience in that it adheres to the truth in its actions in what it does the will embraces the truth and lives it for many people uh, certainly in their lives they without any moral fault on their part, they accept perhaps the culture in which they are in, what their parents taught them, all other kinds of considerations uh, 
that went into the formation of their conscience so that they're unaware when confronted with the truth that it is the truth. And when they have no way of knowing and discerning that, we would say that their ignorance is not vincible, it's not conquerable. It becomes conquered by somebody presenting them with the truth, by those whom perhaps they admire, who are adherents to the truth. And I think this is an important purpose of Catholic radio is to to introduce people to the faith and to the truth. You know, as in some of the discussions last night, some people, it takes a long time to infiltrate into the conscience and to break down the barriers that have been put up by the traditions and by the culture that they were raised in. Ultimately, God will judge whether in a particular case the, con- the ignorance of the Catholic faith or the ignorance of a, a moral truth is vincible, conquerable, and whether they're at fault for it not being known and believed, or whether it's invincible, that given the circumstances of their life, they would have no, they are not, they have not arrived at a point where they are morally responsible for not knowing the truth. So that's what it means to have invincible ignorance, that there is no moral culpability for not knowing the truth and adhering to it. I think in our culture, when you look it around, for instance, at the moral arena, particularly with regard to the Sixth and Ninth Commandment, there are a lot of people who simply take it for granted there is no problem there. And the fact that somebody tells them the Bible says or the Pope says or the Church says doesn't, doesn't sink in. But over time, it may sink in when they discover the reasons why the Church says that from the effects of the sin or the the way of life or the belief that they've embraced. So God understands that and God judges the consciences. And the church is only now historically getting around to take this aspect uh, into more ever greater consideration. Um, And I think we understand that when you hear the distinction between proselytizing, where you're simply telling a person, hey, unless you become a Catholic, you're going to hell. Well, that makes no impression on a person whose all the voices they've heard in their life are saying the Catholics, they don't believe really in Jesus and they don't believe in the Bible and they worship Mary and all these other things. So it takes a while for grace and the truth that they hear to seep into that conscience to the point where they say, maybe there's a problem with my belief and I need to look into this a little further. And that's the story we hear from so many converts, whether it's on the journey home and in other places, is the length of time it took them to get to the point where they overcame the barriers put up by their own background, their own circumstances of life, their own family or religious traditions to see there's something wrong here and to begin to investigate and to find out the truth and to embrace the truth about the church. So we don't know where any person is on that spectrum and we leave it to God and his grace and his insight uh, to deliver them to him because ultimately he loves them and wants them in the full embrasure of the truth more than we could possibly do ourselves. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Cheryl would like to know, what's the difference between mediator and intercessor? 
Well, a mediator is an instrument to somebody who is a medium. In other words, they're instrumental in the process that the person, you know, is involved in. So you look at the way in which the clergy, the priest, mediates the sa- grace through the sacraments. Lay people can do that as well, but not in quite the direct way, acting in the person of Christ as does the priest. So that's a mediation of sort. It's a secondary mediation because obviously that priest or that individual or that parent who is being a catechist to their children, they're not being, they're not the one who redeemed them. And we understand that. But the church has embraced this idea of secondary uh, causality, recognizing that God employs many kinds of instruments. The primary instrument is, of course, the human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the instrument, the sole instrument that saves us. But others, beginning with the Blessed Virgin Mary and her role in that, has a mediatory role, which the Church speaks of cooperating uh, in, in the Incarnation and in the various aspects of Christ's ministry and in his passion and death. And then on the case of the intercessor, this is something where you pray to God. You're not being an instrument of grace or the gospel or some aspect of divine revelation to a person to bring them to the truth, to the light, or to grace, but rather you're praying that God will do this through some means. In other words, through the human mediators who will accomplish those things uh, in his providence, in his plan. So that would be the main distinction. The intercessor appeals to God on our behalf. It's God, of course, who always does the work through Christ in the Holy Spirit. And whereas the mediator is a secondary cause, an instrumental cause of some feature of of, uh, redemption, such as bringing the sacraments, bringing the gospel, and so on. So we make those distinctions between being a a direct channel and being someone who appeals to God that the person would uh, perhaps receive a deeper understanding, receive a particular grace that they seek. 833-288-EWTN, that is our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call with your question at 833-288-3986. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline, all one word, openline at EWTN.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or... Send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, school and homework and sports are probably part of your kid's daily routine, but don't let family time get pushed aside. The Journeys of St. Paul board game, it's great for ages 8 to adult, and it lets you become one of several messengers sent to deliver one of St. Paul's monumentous letters. 
Your mission, to be the first to cross the city gate and deliver St. Paul's letter to its secret destination. But beware, the Romans are intent on seeking and destroying all Christians. So the chase may indeed be on. This adventure requires cleverness, courage, and tenacity with billions of souls at stake. And it's available now at EWTN's religious catalog. That's EWTNRC.com with free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. That is standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. I think that is so cool. I'm <laughs> that is, and the next generation may have it set in uh, our time in America or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. 833-288-EWTN. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. Margaret wants to know, this is a good, this is a great question. i give you an opportunity to make some distinctions here, Colin. Margaret says, is my desire for my baby to be baptized sufficient for a baptism? I am of the opinion, and this is merely opinion, that Catholic parents or a parent who desires the baptism of their children through who, and for that child who is born, stillborn, or uh, is not, does not come to, come to the light of day, other, and even for those perhaps of a parent whose child is taken from them against their own will, uh, as uh, one of the parties has the right to do in our country through abortion, that that could be sufficient. Now, th the church has not ruled on this point, and so the reason being that we know from the gospel that baptism is the door to grace, faith in Christ, charity, and union of love, and all of that is attained through baptism. So we don't know of other means. Now the church has approved of a of blood martyrdom as being equivalent to baptism and justification, and catechumens who are killed before they're uh, before they're able to receive baptism, and this would be those maybe who die through sickness and accident, not necessarily during Roman times that this also is sufficient. But these, of course, are adults whose wills can be fixed on Christ even though they've not yet received baptism. The question of the unborn uh, has not been resolved. It's speculatively thought by many that the unborn children of those who parents who desire them, and it would only take uh, one parent, I think, to do that, uh, could be baptized uh, as a consequence of that. In the interesting case of the, the whole family that was put to death that was recently uh, beatified, one of the children seems to have been either in the womb or born uh, before, before the death or at the time of death. The Vatican chose to accept that that child had been born rather, I think, than solve this question of the unborn uh, whether the unborn uh, child was also a martyr, so that would be that would be equivalent to a baptism of desire, or you you might in this case say martyrdom by a blood blood baptism through the will of their parents to have baptized that child. So that remains an un an undogmatized 
opinion in the church, whether it ever will be. The practice of the popes, as the Catechism of the Catholic Church does, is to commend such children to the mercy of God and to leave to God, who in his great mercy, much greater than our own, uh, certainly has a solution to that problem, even though we don't know by divine revelation what that solution is. What about the situation where they have a perfectly healthy newborn? Mm -hmm. Is the desire to have that child baptized sufficient for a baptism? Because there are some promises that they're going to be asked to make. That that's true. So you're talking about a child that is born and before it's uh, able to be baptized, were to die. See, I don't think there's death. I don't think death is part of her question. No, but I think what she's kind of asking is, do I have to promise to be Catholic to get my child baptized? Right. Well, she's kind of asking. Yeah, but that's that we don't really know for sure. But that's a whole other situation. Uh, in the case of the non-Catholic party to a marriage, is whether they will agree to have the child baptized. Uh, I, I think the church will generally baptize in those situations, um, but I'm not positive what the pastoral practice is there uh, if, one, if one parent desires the baptism of the child. That's quite different than a grandparent or other third party doing it. Uh, that's not permitted by the church. That's not the mind of the church. Uh, the parents have that right and no others. Uh, to baptize, um, and so that wouldn't be accepted. So I think we leave that to God, but it's a not unreasonable conclusion, with regard both with regard to those who die in the womb and those who die before they can be baptized. Now, that being said, I recall the haste with which we wanted our son to be baptized when he was born, and of course was, uh, had that possibility. So um, that's always available to a parent who's born, uh, whose child is born ill and may die soon. Yeah. Um, Scott writes in, and let me give you those numbers once again. We've got wide open phone lines for you, a unique opportunity for you on Open Line Friday, 833-288-EWTN. With your theology questions or any teachings of the church questions for Colin Donovan, 833-288-3986. Scott wants to know, what did the Gnostics believe, and are the Gnostic Gospels valid? The Gnostic Gospels were rejected by the Church. Uh, The Gnostics uh, believed that knowledge is somehow the saving thing, and so gnosis means to acquire the knowledge that saves. And you would be, you know, somebody who's in a various stage of that until you are perfect. And so that was not what Christ taught. That's not what the church teaches. That basically allows anybody to set up an institution and call it a church and make their particular doctrine uh, be the doctrine of Christ and call it as such, which is what the Gnostics did, which is why in the early church fathers had to deal with them for the first couple hundred years uh, of the church already beginning already beginning in Asia Minor in the, in the first century. So that's basically the, the approach. There are, throughout history, there have been very many Gnostic movements. Uh, in a way, Masonry, Freemasonry, ha- is a kind of Gnosis. 
where it isn't uh, a divinely appointed priesthood or sacramental system or doc, uh, body of doctrine, but rather acquiring, th- going through the stages of degrees and you know, joining this universal brotherhood of man, which is not the same one which the church speaks of. That's one of the reasons that the popes began in the 1700s when uh, masonry was sort of, I wouldn't, they would say revived, we would say begun, uh, that the church condemned it so quickly is that it has some of that character of, of salvation by a gnosis, by knowledge, by joining and going through the steps and the degrees and so on and, you know, blood curdly secrets and things like that to protect the secrecy. The church had something called the secret in the early days as well. Uh, and what it was was that we believe that the body and blood, of the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. That was the great secret that the church had as the true secret to eternal life. Gnosis is not the secret to eternal life. 833-288-EWTN. That is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Put your Calvinist thinking cap on, Colin. Oh, wrong show for that, but I'll do my best. (laughs) Michael wants to know, how can I answer my Protestant friend who says that God predestined us to heaven or hell because he's all-knowing even before he creates us? Well, in a way, it's true, but it's not a predestination by which we have no role or participation. It's a predestination primarily of knowledge, and that is he knows that every creature that will come about by the, by the free will, the free will of two parents who produce children or two individuals who produce children, maybe they're not married, but in any case, every child who is born is a child of God, and through their free will now, can make that ju- determination, you know, to to be with Christ for eternity or to go to the other place. So God leaves us free to make those decisions, although he knows the result of everything. And he primarily knows it simply by the nature of God. Uh, it's very easy to sort of put God in a, a box and say that well, he's constrained in some way by time, for example. He's not constrained by time. Uh, there have been some theories that have tried, uh, theories of physics even. Uh, I, I remember one in, in the 70s and 80s which tried to, you know, put God into, into the physical universe or have him in some dimension of the quantum world or something like this, and this allowed him to, to know from every time. I mean, you only need to watch, you know, some of the Avengers movies to get an idea of of the quantum world and moving through time. Well, there were people who actually thought, well, this is where God was. God transcends all that he created. He, The quantum world and other things which physics is finding, those things only exist because he created them. So God knows everything in one eternal moment, in one eternal now, and we give the expression of that knowledge, a name, the Word, and the Word became flesh. In this way, God entered into time, and that's the only way he did it. So any conception of God must include this knowledge of his eternity and his transcendence, 
by which everything which will happen in history he knows and in one sense you could say has already been determined because he de- he knew and acted and brought about the effect in that simplicity of, of the eternal now. But that didn't take away our freedom. And this is the mysterious aspect of human freedom and the workings of grace is that for God, it's all a done deal in his knowledge. But we only are living that out now in time. And the resolution of that is so difficult that religious communities that tried to solve it, theologians tried to solve it, were sort of told by the Pope, stop fighting among yourselves. We're not going to solve this. It's a mystery. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our good friends at Spirit Catholic Radio in central and northern Illinois need to hear from you next week. They're airing their 2023 Fall Appeal next Wednesday and Thursday. So if you're listening in Bloomington, Normal, Pontiac, Lincoln, Joliet, or really anywhere you have Catholic Radio, please support your local EWTN Catholic Radio station. 833-288-EWTN. That is our toll-free number, 833 833- 288-3986. Annalie is a first-time caller in Springfield, Missouri, listening on Catholic Radio Network. Annalie, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. What can we do for you today? Yes, um, I just wanted to ask uh, if it's sinful for me to... Um, I have a friend, I work with him, and he's gay, and he's going to have his wedding soon, and I'm just uh, confused on what I need to do if, you know, I know I have to love him, but I don't know mm-hmm. if I need to be there for his wedding, because I feel like if I go there, I'm supporting that, and I don't support that, but I love him as a human being. Sure. So uh, I just want to know what our Catholic stand is, uh, like attending gay weddings. Well, it isn't, it isn't a Catholic stance so much on gay weddings as it is a moral stance on standing for the truth or being seen to not stand for the truth. So on that basis, uh, it would be generally considered scandalous to participate in any way in a, a gay wedding. On the basis of this, people are now being arrested and uh, taken to court in the United States because they refuse to participate by making cakes or doing uh, doing creative uh, artistry work uh, in support of of gay marriage, so that that would be the issue, and it wouldn't matter whether it was that or whether it was some other, you know, immoral thing that uh, being asked to appear at in order to support it. Um, you know, to go and observe an abortion, not that I'm making a comparison between the two, but to pick something in people's experience would understand that that would be morally wrong. And you could pick any number of things to go and see, uh, uh, you know, a blood sport, for example, uh, such as in the days of the gladiators or something like this. So, not that there's any moral equivalency here, but it's simply the point that when there is something that is an offense against God, 
we can't do things which seem to give it a support. And I think that's, that would be the difficulty. Uh, two Catholics who have shamelessly rejected their faith and they have a civil wedding would be another example of that. If they were not Catholics and didn't have the obligation to marry before the church and didn't know better that that was their obligation, then, you know, if it were two Protestants or two people of lacking in faith, that would not be a problem. The marriage would be valid for Catholics. Catholics who reject their obligation to marry before the church marry invalidly. And that can get corrected after the fact. But to participate in that basically is to add the weight of your presence in support of that event. Uh, so this would not be something that you should, you should contemplate doing. Uh, I think you simply have to be honest about that if asked. Um, if they're taking a nose count of people who go, then I would think that's more their problem than it is yours. Uh, if they're looking for some, you know, uh, reason to judge you because you don't go, uh, again, that's nothing you can be concerned about. Uh, our Lord wants us to have greater respect for his opinion than the opinions of human beings. And I know when Mother Angelica was on television, very often she talked about this thing of human respect. It contributes to the perpetuation of all kinds of evils in the world simply because people are afraid to act according to their conscience, but rather they act in suppliantly, you know, bending over backwards to appease the opinion of another person. And that's, that's as a Christian, we need to ask God for the strength uh, to not do that. And the way to continue to love and appeal to them and treat them properly in other contexts. So uh, that's a challenge for you. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm sure it is. I know it would be. Uh, I've not had that particular one, but I've had similar ones in my life, and I know that those are, those are challenges of dealing when relatives and friends have completely different opinions on important moral or church matters uh, than, than we ourselves do. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833 833- 288-3986. Next up is Joe in Kennewick, Washington, listening on the EWTN app. Joe, you're on with Colin Donovan. Thank you. Hey, I got a question on, uh, does the church excuse me, have any doctrine or opinion on why Jesus never wrote anything down? And if they do not, what is your outtake on that subject? Interesting. Sure. Uh, I, I, there is not. I've not heard it asked. I've not heard or read a theologian discussing it, uh, certainly not any teaching document of the Church. I think you can draw some conclusions for this from this. Christ taught the apostles. In other words, if he was the Word of God, he taught the apostles, and then they taught others and they taught others, and they taught others. And so the word is perpetuated orally down through the centuries. This is a very clear line. 
they wrote things, he wrote things. Imagine if we had extant writer, you know, writings of Jesus, you know, where he maybe he, he wrote a letter to Peter to chastise him about something or whatever. That was not how they communicated in those days. There, there was many things just passed on orally. Uh, it, was the, it was the nature of the society. The rabbis teaching Paul would have been taught by Gamaliel through oral teaching, and any of the great rabbinical masters would have taught their disciples through oral teaching. And to this day, the oral teaching is a big part of that way of communicating the truth, and many societies did that as well, even if they, even if they had some form of writing. So there is sort of historical precedent for that, but I think it was the nature of who he was that he communicated himself as a word to those who are his immediate disciples, who then they give it to us. Now, as we know from St. Paul, he also said, uh, St. Paul said that they sh- people should pay attention to that which is handed on, and the word in Latin there is tr- would be uh, traditio, from tradere, to, to hand over something, to pass something along both orally and in writing. And so the church looks at both orally as being tradition and the writing, sacred scripture, as tradition. And these two things are together. They're both divine revelation. Both Jesus, what he he spoke orally to his apostles and what they taught to others who they made bishops and those bishops to uh, and down through the centuries. That's why the church has a body of apostolic tradition which are things that are well-founded in the teaching of all of the apostles wherever they went. So something even in this late 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd or 4th, which is taught everywhere in the Mediterranean by all those particular churches that can be traced back to the apostles, that constitutes an apostolic tradition because there's a unanimity there. If all the apostles are teaching the same thing, you have to ask the question, hey, Where's the common font of this? Well, it's Jesus, of course. So apostolic tradition is not the church making stuff up, for example, but that the word has been communicated and passed on through these lines of apostles down to the bishops of every century. And where there is this agreement, and it uh, concurs with what the fathers taught, and it concurs with what Scripture taught, you know that the source is Christ. So I think it's a much clearer line of communication, and it says something very strongly to the people of the first and subsequent centuries about how the way truth and history and all of that was passed on. And of course, as in those centuries, as what Moses said, as what Elijah said, as what the prophets said, it got written down by their disciples, and that's exactly what happened with our Lord. So there's a commonality even in that between the Old Covenant and the New. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Haley's watching us on YouTube today, Colin, and she says, Can one gain partial indulgences without realizing it? I've learned that partial indulgences can be gained by short prayers, which I've been doing for a long time. Have I been gaining indulgences? Only with intentionality. So, in any Catholic prayer book or on the internet, including EWTN's website, or maybe 
taught by Sister Rosemary back in second grade, however you learned it. Many people say a morning offering, which generally includes an intention such as this, I intend to gain all the indulgences for the works that I do today, and then perhaps to offer it for the intentions of the Immaculate Heart and the Sacred Heart, or however else. So there you're making what's called a virtual intention to to do what the church wants you to do, to gain indulgences for yourself, but also, say, for the poor souls. And so you make that intention every morning, and God honors that. If you're not doing that, then yes, you have to mechanically, in every single case where you do an indulgence work, go through the steps. And I think it's certainly a good idea to do the morning offering for that, because I think only in eternity will we know, only when we get to heaven or personally, will we know the good that that has done, how the Lord is looking uh, for that. There's a very common word today which people might think it was only invented in the 90s or the 2000s or something, intentionality. The church has been teaching intentionality for two millennia, to do what you will to do intentionally, to do it with the knowledge that it's for God and for the love of God and for the love of neighbor, to say your prayers intentionally and not just sort of, you know, going through the motions. So the church, long before modern psychology taught intentionality, the church did. And this would be one of the areas where intentionality uh, is important. It has a role also in other places such as the sacraments, because when a priest is ordained to the sacraments, he doesn't have to will to exercise the sacraments. He says the matter, he says he uses the form, he uses the matter in the form that's required. And unless he reverses his intention, so what about a priest who suddenly stops believing in the, in the Eucharist? He still has the power of the priesthood, and his exercise of that will be valid. But when he now wills not to exercise it, that's a different kind of intentionality. And so there have been cases where holy orders have been uh, invalidated at Rome because it was known that a particular priest had at the time of his ordination not intended to do what the church does. In fact, the whole Anglican communion Mm -hmm. in the mind of the church was decided by Leo XIII that after the Catholic era of Henry in the first part of Elizabeth's reign, when they changed the prayer book and the prayers of uh, ordination, they lost the intentionality to do what Christ said. So be intentional in the Catholic sense, attentively, devoutly, and carefully saying your prayers, desiring to get indulgences, to serve the Lord, to give it to the Lord to use as he wishes. And I would recommend doing it through the Immaculate Heart of Our Lady because that's what she asked for us to do uh, in Fatima for the sake of peace in the world and all the troubles which our world has. I want to invite you to check out Catholic Cafe Sunday mornings at 10.30 Eastern Time. 
Deacon Jeff Drazimski talks with men about how to share experiences, strengthen their faith, and be better husbands and fathers. That's the Catholic Cafe, Sunday morning, 1030 Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Wide open phone lines for you. Pick up the phone and give us a call, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. MK is watching on YouTube. How can one balance, quote-unquote, don't put your light under a bushel <laughs> with, quote-unquote, go to your inner room when you pray? I guess it, it, we're talking about intention. If your intention is to stand on the street corner as the Pharisee did and to say, Lord, I am glad I am not this you know, this poor peasant throwing his penny in the offer as an offering because I do my prayers, I do all. Yeah, your intention is the important thing. You know, you find that when we simply go about doing the work of God as we find is our duty in life or in, in a special circumstances, you think of a Mother Teresa or, uh, or even a Carol Wojtyla being elected Pope, and then going on his the trips, he did things which made sense for him to do, but he did it for the good of souls and the salvation of souls. The intention is the key thing. In everything that we do, good or bad, there are always three elements. The thing itself, is it a good act or is it an evil act? The intention with which we do it, if we do a good act and we do it with a bad intention, so for example, if if we stand on the street corner to get attention, bad intention. Any good we done has been completely destroyed by the bad intention that we bring to it. And then the third thing is circumstances. What is the circumstances? There are times when we, when we should not do things, uh, maybe standing on a street corner, and other times we meet a poor man at the side of the road, as in the story of the Good Samaritan, you know, and we're thinking of our position, we're thinking of all kinds of complications. No, in that circumstance, we might be judged for not doing something. So circumstance can change our obligation as well. Uh, so those three things. And I think it really gets down to, are we intending to do something good and is it, or is it vainglorious? The trouble with we human beings is we often do things with mixed emotions or mixed intentions, rather. And that is, we can do it for the glory of God, but, you know, we do sort of like the glo the human glory that we get out of it, too. And I think um, this is a, a danger in, in religion in general. I think it's a danger, Jack, in our business that we get vainglorious in what we do and not think of it as we're doing the will of God. The human respect is not important. We simply have to be truthful, but we have to do it in a loving way, and we're not doing it, you know, shouting from the rooftops how good we are and things like that. So intention is important in determining whether something is done uh, your, to show your light before the world or for your own sake or for God's sake. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. We can still fit your phone call in at 833-288-3986. Uh, Michael is watching on YouTube as well, and he says, Something I've always wondered... What do terms like venerable and blessed signify about a departed soul? When the church begins a cause for canonization, 
uh, the person is designated a servant of God, and they collect all the data of the person's life, and the uh, local tribunal organized by the bishop of the place uh, to judge the case uh, looks at that, and they determine whether this person lived a life of heroic virtue. Heroic virtue being the evident the evidence of, 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 of grace operating in their, in their life and their fidelity to the graces that they receive by their uh, living virtuously in all of the areas, the three supernatural virtues, the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, as well as the four cardinal virtues, uh, justice, prudence, uh, piety, no, I've got those wrong, justice, prudence, temperance, and fortitude. And under those are, would be all the other moral virtues associated with those four cardinal virtues. So that's what it means to be a servant of God. And when this is investigated and then it's sent to Rome and they investigate it again, at a certain point, the congregation or dicastery for the saints now will propose to the Pope that this person did in fact live a life of heroic virtue as confirmed at the diocesan level, as now confirmed at the level of the dicastery, and that they can be declared venerable. And so the Pope, if he agrees and does it, that person is now called venerable, and so we can recognize their heroic virtues in the Church. At this point, another process begins, and that is looking for, is there a miracle which would affirm by which God would affirm that this decision of the church was called for. A miracle in that case would be God's you know, hand of favor on the judgment of the church. And so when that miracle is checked out, it's very often a medical miracle, just because those are typically the ones that come forward. Something where science says this is inexplicable, something where the theologians say, yes, this was instantaneous, it could be nothing other than the hand of God, it's supernatural. And then finally, again, the Pope declares that, yes, the person can be called blessed. And that allows them to be venerated, say, if it was a Franciscan among Franciscans, or if it was an American, say, in the United States. And then the process begins again, and they look for a second miracle, and the purpose of that miracle is that the person gets universal veneration in the whole church. And so when the person is canonized and called a saint, this is God's hand again saying this person can be recognized by the entire church as a disciple, as a witness, and in their own right for their cooperation for grace. And so the formula of that is very solemn, and the person is, uh, basically the church is commanded to give them in justice the, uh, the honor that is due to somebody who has completely and thoroughly uh, satisfied and lived their life for our Lord and manifested that in their life, such that the church has now recognized it through the cause and through two miracles. Um. Pam is watching us on Facebook Live. She says, Mr. Donovan, can you talk about Eucharistic miracles? Do they happen still today? 
They do. We hear what a them. timely question. It was. We had the uh, the uh, Blessed Acutis uh, display of the miracles uh, at uh, at our radio conference, yep. and uh, the, so numerous over the centuries, and probably many others that don't receive that recognition. Um, you know, I, I think there are many cases that they simply don't because it's considered common uh, by priests. I, I Navy chaplains who said, you know, the phenomena of hosts being preserved in very moist and other conditions in tropical environments and so on for long periods of time so they could be available, for, you know, for the communions of servicemen and things like that was recognized. I mean, this was something that I think among chaplains was not an unknown experience. Uh, and I had that experience myself of something over the course of many months that we were at sea uh, where I was given the privilege of being a Eucharistic minister for the purpose of communion services when we couldn't have a chaplain on board, which was 99% of the time. And yet when we returned to Pearl Harbor, the hosts were as fresh as the day I left eight months earlier. That's not a natural phenomena. Uh, and so those kinds of things like that that are rather ordinary are, are also examples of Eucharistic miracles. But the more phenomenal ones where, you know, flesh of the heart and blood consistent with all the other Eucharistic mir miracles uh, being found uh, in the precious blood by test, uh, those are not uncommon either, and they are continuing in our day. Courtney wants to know, can you tell me more about the blessing of religious items? What is the purpose of this? A blessing is a consecration. A consecration is a more solemn blessing, such as of a church or an altar, but a blessing sets it apart for God's service. So a medal or a statue or even the habit of a religious uh, is blessed because it's being now set apart for holy things. It's set apart for God, and that's the purpose of a blessing. Catholics go out from every Mass with a blessing because we're told to go out, you know, proclaim the gospel. Um, and so this is what we're set out to do. And not only our communion, but our, the blessing is, is a sending off to do that, to remind us that we're set apart by God as, bapti as the baptized to do that. And that's, uh, that's basically its purpose. It says, you know, it's God saying, this one is mine, you, this other person, this other guy, you go somewhere else. This is set apart for me, this person, this place, this object. On behalf of our host, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. We'll be back at it again on Monday with... Father John Tregilio, Father Wade Benizis will be in the house on Tuesday. Father Mitch in the house on Wednesday. We'll visit with Father Brian Malady on Thursday. And our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, will be back with us next Friday. Have a great weekend. Go to Mass. God bless. <laughs>